0: I want to begin or pick up the story, actually, in verse 25 and, and read through to verse 29. Actually, just for a little bit more context, let's, let's just back up to verse 24. I really wanted the full context. I go back to the first verse of the chapter because it's, it, it, uh, it really does all tie together. And, and hopefully I'll explain that a little bit um, as we go this morning. I'm going to read to you out of the New American Standard 2020, beginning with verse 24 of John chapter 5. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, the one who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come to judgment, but is passed out of death into life. And that's really the context of what we're going to read in these next four verses. And then again, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, a time is coming and even now has arrived when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who are here will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come out. Those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed bad deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Or as the new King James says, of condemnation and so father we pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning concerning this passage that you would grant us understanding and that you enable us to receive from you that which you have for each of us this morning we pray that you would give us ears to hear what the spirit would say we ask these things in jesus name and all god's people said, amen So, the context of verses 25 through verse 29, as I said to you earlier, is is what Jesus says in verse 21. He says, he who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. Him who sent Jesus obviously is the Father. And, of course, Jesus will build upon this later on when he says no man comes to the Father except for by him. And yet, there is this importance that we have a correct understanding of God to the degree that we are able. And I would say even to the degree that we have been uh, informed by the Bible. It's it's not always completely clear. I think it does does some digging. I think, though, here, uh, verses 25 through 29 has the deity of Jesus Christ just written all over it, if, if you can see it. Because why is he saying all of these things that he's saying? Well, it goes back to the very beginning of the chapter when Jesus healed a man by the pool of Bethesda. And when he healed that man, he had the nerve, if you will, to do it on the Sabbath when he could have done it on any day that he wanted. Which I will add, he did, by the way. He did do it on the day that he wanted. And as I was thinking about this, even early this morning, it it, it, it is not, it's easy to misunderstand this a little bit, I think. Jesus, in my opinion, is not really saying here, I'm God, I can do what I want. Now, he is saying, I'm God. But he's not not coming at us with that type of posture. I'm God, I can do what I want. Now, as God, can he do whatever he wants? Yes, he can. I think what he is really saying, and again, saying that my father has been working and I am working until now, what he is truly saying is that I am naturally doing what I have done since eternity past. Because God always works on the Sabbath, does he not? If God wasn't at least doing something on the Sabbath, uh, the whole world would probably implode, explode, fall apart. This idea that Colossians talked about where Jesus holds the entirety of the universe in His hand, which just fascinates me beyond belief. But God always works on the Sabbath. And did he need, when he created, was he tired after those six days? It says he rested on the seventh day, right? Or was he already setting an example? He's setting an example. The Bible and all that we read in it will preach to us in so many different ways if we let it. And that is Jesus, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, taking a break in reality telling us that we need to take a break, 1 and 7 as well. And he goes on to say that those who believe in him, believe in the one who sent him, the Father, has eternal life and does not come to judgment, but they have passed out of death into life. That's an important aspect to take into consideration as we, we read ahead through verse 25 through 19 because then Jesus comes back and he says to us, Truly, truly, I say to you, the time is coming. Now, does that sound like future tense? The time is coming. It's not, by the way, but it sounds like future tense. The time is coming and even now has arrived. I looked them up. They're both present tense. The coming and is arrived is all in the present tense. The time is coming. And even now has arrived. What you have Jesus talking about here, I believe, is that, that tension that we see in the Gospels when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. I've talked to you guys about this many, many times. Jesus declared the kingdom of God is here. Jesus declared the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus declared that the kingdom of God is future, now, which is it? See, in our Western thinking, we want one of the three, right? We're, we're either-or type of thinker. That's what our culture thinks in, either-or. Yes or no, black and white. Right or wrong. I, I, and then, of course, we try to stretch things when we refer to, like, lights, traffic lights. I know we don't have those here, so it's hard to relate unless you're driving to Ben and Redmond. But anyway, traffic lights, and we say, well, the light was pink. Actually, if you combine yellow and red, you don't get pink, folks. It's orange. But anyway, I digress, all right? But we like either or thinking. And often it is that Jesus in the Gospels and even in in, uh, (coughs) Paul's letters, Peter's, Peter's letters to a lesser degree, he's really declaring both and, not either or. Jews think much more holistically than we do. They think about the entire picture. They think about how a particular event or circumstance or uh, characteristic of truth fits into that whole picture. And Jesus is telling us here that the time is coming and has arrived that the dead will hear the voice of God and those who hear him will live. Now, without taking the time to turn to it this morning, he's referring back to Isaiah chapter 55, verse 3, and Ezekiel 37, verse 4. And he is probably in verse 25. Now, stick with me on this, all right? He is probably in verse 25 talking about those who are spiritually dead and those who become spiritually alive. Now, in verse 28, he's going to shift gears. That's what I mean about the both and the either or going on here. He's going to shift gears, I think, slightly in verse 28 and talk about end times. But he's saying that they will hear the voice of the Son of God. That's important to underline, to to think into, uh, to take into perspective here. They will hear the voice of the Son of God. In other words, Jesus is saying they will hear my voice. And those who hear will live. I'm not talking audibly, but have you ever heard the voice of God? Because God does not have to speak audibly for him to be able to communicate. Actually, we don't have to speak audibly to communicate, do we? Ever heard a body language? It's an interesting read. It's an interesting field to to delve into. But have you heard the voice of Jesus lately? Have you ever asked him to speak? And he doesn't. And if he doesn't, How do you respond? Because there are times that I, Lord, I need you to speak. And what I have found, at least in my own life, is that when he's silent, it's a form of communication. He's saying, trust me. I'm like, oh, my goodness, has it come down to that? Well, yeah. But have you heard his voice? Because it was, it's, Jesus is saying here the time is coming and now it has arrived that those who hear the voice of the Son of God will hear it and, and, and they will live. I think back of the prologue again, John chapter 1, in him was life. And in him was the light of men. Sometimes I'm not sure we cover John, well, John 1 well enough. And we spent a long time there, didn't we? But still, there, there is just so much there that we really do see repeated here in the gospel stories. And then he goes on to say, for as the Father has life in himself. Now, he's building upon what he just said in verse 25, by the way. As the father has life in himself, so we gave to the son also to have life in himself. Okay, the son has life in himself. Okay, our life, do we have life in ourselves? Not not really. In other words, are we the, the progenitor of our own life? That's what I'm really asking. As human beings. As human beings, we are created beings, right? And that's that's sort of what this is touching on here, where it says the father has life in himself. To, who created the father? Nobody. The Father has existed. I'm getting myself into trouble here this morning. I can see by some of the looks on your faces. But the Father has existed all through eternity past. In the beginning was the Word. Who's the Word? It's Jesus, okay? The Word was with God. God in that verse refers to whom? The Father. And the Word was God. Now it refers to something a little different than the Father. In the same verse. Deity. Deity and deity alone can have life in themselves. Or else we would live in these physical bodies forever, would we not? Oh, I have a cold. I think I have to do something and make my body better. Or I have cancer. I have to do something internally to make my body better, you know? When we get sick, what do we do? Well, most of us, not all of us, actually. But when we get really sick, what do we do? Don't worry. If you haven't done it, you will eventually. Trust me. You go to a doctor, right? And they they treat you because we do not have life in ourselves. But the son has life in himself as, as the father has life in himself. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is he is describing yet another of his divine attributes. This is a, really a claim to deity is what it is. And, and, and uh, the cults want to gloss over this as if, as if, and really not take it into consideration because all that Jesus is saying here in chapter 5 is in response to him doing what? already told you. It's in response to him doing what? Healing on the Sabbath. Doing something that only God had the prerogative to do. Claiming equality with the Father. And and I think in taking the time to unpack this passage, hopefully we've seen this, where where Jesus is using the, the healing of this man to further expound upon his divine nature. and because he has life in himself it's impossible for the grave to hold him and so as i as i thought about this i thought wow acts chapter 2 verse 24 i'm going to read it to you Now it makes a little bit more sense because what Jesus is implying here is his forthcoming resurrection because he has life in himself. Therefore, if he has life in himself, it is impossible for the grave to hold him. Acts 2.24, Peter is speaking, and he says, he's talking about Jesus whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. It is death. In other words, Peter is saying it was not possible that Jesus could be held by the pains of death. So God raised him up again. This also goes back to what John wrote again in the prologue in John chapter 1, verse 4, that in him was life. Now, you think about it. How else are we going to be able to live forever? There will have to be something supernaturally done to us. I'm talking about our soul here let alone the resurrection of the body, which we, verse 28, I believe, is talking about. Because in other versions, other translations, versions, of the Bible, it refers to Jesus also as the prince of life in in Acts chapter 2, but also in in Acts chapter 3, verse 15, that he is the prince of life, that is the author of life. Not only the author of life, but Hebrews tells us he's what? He's the author and the finisher, which means the completer of our faith. Is our faith completed today? No, I I don't think it is. Thank you, Bill. I don't think our life is, or excuse me, our faith is completely, complete, completely complete. Anyway, I don't think our life, is, our, our faith is finished today. And that, that he will one day be the one who completes that. John 10 tells us, well, eventually we'll get there, that Jesus says about himself that he will lay his own life down. He will lay his life down and he will take it up again. And the wonderful thing about this, and think about this for a moment, because he has life in himself, he can share that life to or with whomever will trust in him. Does that sound like a divine being? He can, because he has life in himself, he can share that life with whomever will trust in him. Again, it, it, I, I love this passage because it speaks to me so clearly of his divinity. Just as the father has life in himself, so he gave to the son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to exercise judgment Because he is the son of man. Now, why did the father, this is almost rhetorical, okay, where I'm going. Why did the father give Jesus the authority to have judgment? Jesus answers it right here in the verse. Because he's the son of man. What does that mean? I refer to it often. This morning we're going to take a little bit of a look at it. Let's go to Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to give you kind of a quick overview. Daniel has a dream Um, during the first year of Belshazzar, verse 1. He, has a, a, he had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed, and he, he writes these down. Um, and behold, the four winds, verse 2, of heaven were stirring up the great sea, which is probably the Mediterranean. The four great beasts came up out of the sea, and they were different from each other. I'm not going to go into the full description of the four great beasts. let um, skip down to verse 7. He says, after this, in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong, and had huge iron teeth. And it was devouring breaking in pieces and trampling the, re- uh, the residue with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it and had ten horns. And I considered the horns, and then there was another horn, which means ten plus one was what? Eleven, Okay. You can find this in the book of Revelation, but I'm not going to take the time to go there this morning. All right. So I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a a little one that came up among them before whom three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. So he's giving thought to what he's just seen in this vision. And he says, And I watched till the thrones were all put together, or put in one place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. Now let me just interject here. The Ancient of Days is a name for God the Father. And the Ancient of Days was seated, and his garment was white with wool, which I find fascinating because he describes his garment because it also tells us no man has seen God at any time. But, I'm not going to try to reconcile that. Good luck if you want to try, but anyway. And his hair, w- uh, his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, and his wills a burning fire. And a fiery issue streamed and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousands times ten thousands stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Okay, that's important. The court was seated. The books were opened. What? When you hear the term, the court was seated, where does your mind go? Or where maybe should your mind go? Or maybe hopefully you've never been there, so your mind wouldn't go there. Municipal court. It's a court scene. Now, in the Bible, when we see a court scene, what does that refer to? We've already talked about it in John. Judgment. Okay? What's interesting about what Daniel records in verse 9 and 10, you will see it also in the book of Ezekiel. You will see it also in the book of Revelation. At least variations of those. All right? And it says, And I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking, and I watched till the beast was slain and the body destroyed and was given to the burning flame. And as for the rest of the beasts, the three that I didn't talk about, because we don't have time, as for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Four beasts come up out of the sea. I'm not going to, like I said, I don't have the time to talk about the other three. The fourth one is this dreadful beast, unlike the other three, It tells us in verse 11 that the other beasts had their dominion, verse 12, the other beasts had their dominion taken away. What does that mean? Why would these beasts have dominion in in the first place? They represent something. They represent worldly kingdoms. That's about as far as I, I, I can take it this morning all right just because of time we'll be here till three you got we ain't got nothing else going on right no I'm kidding okay so four beasts representing say so their pictures their metaphors but four actual human worldly kingdoms the one that we should pay the most attention to is that fourth one. Ten horns. An eleventh horn grows up. He plucks out three of the first three horns, which we have ten plus one is 11 minus three is equal to what? Eight, okay? Look that up in the book of Revelation. it's, It's tricky, but anyway. And he's speaking pompous and blasphemous words. And it says, I watched verse 13. Okay, this is, this is the whole reason why we're really hit this passage this morning, but I wanted to give you some background. I was watching in the night visions, behold, one like the Son of Man. Hmm. Let me read it to you again out of John. And he gave him authority, that is the Son, He the Father gave the Son authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So Daniel 7 says, I'm watching in the night visions. Behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient of Days. Now the Ancient of Days is who? It's the Father. Jesus is claiming to be the Son of Man here. You have a court scene. Kingdoms have lost their ability to have dominion. You have the Ancient of Days coming with the clouds of heaven. They And he comes to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him. That is, they brought the Son of Man near before the Ancient of Days. Follow that? All right. And they brought him near before him uh, in the 13, I just read that, sorry. Verse 14. Then to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. And that all peoples, now all peoples, that means everybody, all nations. And languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed whose kingdom the son of man's he's given dominion glory a kingdom peoples nations all language should serve him an everlasting dominion it will not pass away it will not be destroyed This is an end-time vision, is what we're seeing here. This is, I believe, a vision of the final judgment, or at least a picture of it. Now, the thing is, we have to remember that these visions are given to us through the prophets, Daniel being the case here, because they, they are attempting to speak a louder truth. So sometimes you can't always Well, this must be the way it's going to happen. Verbatim, I think there's 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 a lot here that is an an actual uh, proclamation of what will happen, but it's intended to give us a greater understanding of what will happen in the final judgment, dominion, glory, all peoples all nations all languages serving him a dominion that is eternal that will not be taken away and that's what he's saying here that he it was they gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Daniel 7:13 son of man that's what he's identifying with incidentally and There's some dating problems, but there are some non-biblical Jewish apocalyptic literature that refers to the Son of Man also as a messianic figure who will have the same, uh, and I think they took it from Daniel, who will have the same dominion uh, at the final judgment. Whether those books, and Enoch is one, uh, um, uh, I think it's fourth, Ezra's, Uh, Another, whether or not those were actually written before or after the time of Christ is debatable. Okay, so I don't want to get into that. But nonetheless, uh, this was probably prevalent in the Jewish thinking at that time, even though it might not have been recorded. They understood the Son of Man. Jesus is claiming to be the guy in the night vision that Daniel saw that took away that fourth kingdom. Boy, I really want to tear into chapter 2 on this uh, be- because the, with the statue. And, and you have this statue because the fourth kingdom is also uh, the legs of iron. This is chapter 2. This is for extra credit, all right? But it's the legs of iron with the toes, the ten toes, ten toes, ten horns, ten toes that are mixed partially of, of iron and clay, and then a m- huge stone that is not cut from hand, from, from by hand is cast on the feet of that statue. See, we covered all this five years ago. I know you remember it all. But anyway, um, when I did that Wednesday night eschatology study. But the stone is cast on the feet of the statue. The statue disintegrates. It becomes like, like powder, and the wind just carries it off. It's blown into the four corners of the earth. It's is disintegrated. And that stone becomes a huge mountain that covers the whole earth. That stone is a representation of whom? The Son of Man. The stone is a representation of whom? Jesus Christ. Who will, is cast on the ten toes of the statue. All right. I know that some of you really follow me. Some of you just go back to Daniel chapter 2 and read it carefully. All right, Because we're already starting to get over time. But then Jesus says in verse 28, do not be amazed, all right? Do not be amazed. Why would he say that? Because it's very possible that what he is about to say is going to blow our mind, all right? But he says, do not be amazed. For a time is coming when all who hear excuse me, for a time is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come out, going into verse 29. Those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the bad deeds to a resurrection of judgment, or as the New King James says, condemnation. It's actually the New King James, I think, is the only translation that uses the word condemnation. All the other ones use the word judgment. Translating the Greek word krisis, which is often used for judgment in the negative sense. But the, the basic translation of that word is judgment. So Jesus says, don't, and t- so this is an end time prophecy that he's giving that I, I just don't understand why end time people haven't really grabbed a hold of this much. He says the time is coming. The time is coming, by the way, it's not future tense. It's also present tense, which I find fascinating. I'm not sure why. But the word here is future tense. Are you as confused as I am? Good, because I, I, I can't reconcile it. <laughs> but the time is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come out. those who the good deeds those who did the good de- excuse me those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who co- commit the bad deeds to the resurrection of judgment why would they hear the voice of the son of man at that time i believe it's talking about his return And notice both the good and the evil hear his voice. Notice both the good and the evil are resurrected at the same time. We should be reading Paul in light of what Jesus says, not trying to read Jesus in light of what Paul says, by the way, because I know some of you have already in your minds have gone to First Thessalonians chapter 4. What about where it says with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God and the dead in Christ will rise first and those who will and remain will, uh, will be caught up in the air and be forever with him? but we should read that in the context of what Jesus is saying here. To me, I have a hard time reconciling it. But you guys know I'm not a pre-tribber anyway. But Jesus is saying that there are those, when the, when, uh, the time is coming, those in the tombs will hear his voice. They will come out. And then this judgment that will take place. This judgment where, where we, we will all, because the reality is, and here is, here's, I stand, I believe I stand on really good biblical grounds when I tell people all roads lead to God, right? Because I too, I tell people all roads lead to God. Because it says it right here. But do we stand before him as Savior or stand before him as Judge? And a lot of those people who think so universalistically, they don't always like that answer. But we will all stand before God, each and every one of us. And notice it says those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life. And those who commit bad deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Is Jesus preaching salvation of by works here? I don't think so. Didn't he just say, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, the one who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life? Did he not say two chapters ago that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life? Did he change his mind in John 5? Is he contradicting himself? Did he forget what he said in John 3? Or even in John 1, to those who believed in him, he gave them the right to become what? The children of God? What Jesus is talking about here, I believe, is what he said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verses 16 through 20. He goes into Some detail on this. It is by their fruits you will know them. By their fruits you will know them. Someone who has passed from death unto life will demonstrate good works in their life. Now that, that sounds really easy and very comfortable because we can say, well, by their fruits we will know them. And that's what Jesus said. That's what he said in Matthew. But I, I, I want to say that that primarily you and I should be concerned with by my fruits I will know myself as to whether or not I'm in the faith or not. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5 says, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? See, sometimes we get so wrapped up in what everybody else is doing, we forget the person in the mirror. It's easy to do. It's a safe thing to do, isn't it? It really is. It's a safe thing to do. And it's interesting, when I listen to some folks, when they complain about everybody else and and. We do have some among us at times. When they complain about everybody else, that usually tells me that there's something maybe festering in their own life that they don't want to deal with. So it's easier to point a finger. I hate that saying, though. When you point a finger, you've got three pointing back at you. Anyway, that's dumb. But, um, But work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, Paul tells us. Because if we have passed from death unto life, it's going to be demonstrated in good works. And those good works do not get us into heaven, but they are the evidence that we have been saved and therefore members of the heavenly kingdom. Amen? So that's what Jesus is is really bringing to us here in this passage. Again, further affirming. Is deity again I read John uh, excuse me Daniel seven and, and it's like th- th- this son of man figure actually that was how he was described by a commentator or two this son of man figure has to be deity has to be how else could he have a dominion how else could he ha- have have uh, uh, um, I got to read it because I'll, I'll, I'll mess it up but how else will he have dominion and glory and a kingdom and, and how it is that all peoples, all nations, and all languages serve him and his dominion being an everlasting dominion. So if you, you should key into that because the everlasting dominion should take you to 2 Samuel chapter 7 where God made a covenant with David saying that one of your descendants will not cease to sit on the throne of David forever and forever the promise of an eternal kingdom. Daniel is just giving us another side of that perspective and maybe pulling back the veil a little bit more to be able for us to get a heavenly view of that final judgment when that fourth kingdom, earthly kingdom, represented by the beast, is finally put down and he will reign